0: This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today my guest is Dr. Alice Chen. Dr. Chen is a fellowship trained physiatrist and interventional specialist in the non operative management of spine and sports disorders. She practices at the Hospital for Special Surgery in Stanford, Connecticut. Dr. Chen received her MD from the University of Michigan Medical School and completed her residency at UMDNJ Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Dr. Chen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Happy to be here.
0: So, before we get started, I just wanted to briefly address uh, COVID 19. We are recording this on April 1st, 2020, in the heart of the pandemic. I just wanted to tip my cap to the uh, brave, selfless healthcare workers on the front lines. I'd especially like to dedicate this episode to a classmate of mine at University of Michigan uh, who works as a nurse and recently tested positive for COVID-19, so thanks for your bravery and and get well soon. Um,
1: Yes, I hope he gets well soon as well.
0: (laughs) So I just wanted to uh, really start with the the basics. Um, In your own words, what is physiatry? Physiatry
1: is the specialty of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, It's a smaller specialty and many people don't actually know about it. Um, There's two divisions of it. Uh, There's the physical medicine piece of it, which is uh, the piece that uh, is is often thought of as uh, musculoskeletal medicine. So it's the medicine of how your muscles, joints, and bones move together and how they help you function um, um, out in the real world. Um, The other piece of it is rehabilitation, and that's the medicine of um, getting a patient from um, a position where they're unable to do things to a position where they are, so that's the rehabilitation after injuries such as uh, stroke or long-term disability, like after being on a ventilator, um, or uh, traumatic brain injuries or spinal cord injuries. It's the medicine of getting back, uh, to, uh, to the person's baseline. So, um, the, the balance of the two, the physical medicine and the rehabilitation, um, is the art of getting the patient, um, the person back to doing, um, what they want to be doing.
0: So the part of that you said was the, the musculoskeletal. So when you look at a, musculoskeletal patients care team um, you kind of have an orthopedic surgeon a physical therapist and perhaps an interventional radiologist you throw in uh, a physiatrist like yourself can you kind of talk about how you work in tandem with all those uh, professionals and 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 what role you sort of play and what what kind of things you leave for other uh, parts of that care team
1: Sure. Um, I like to tell people, because it, it seems to be a very broad explanation, um, and certainly our field encompasses many, many disorders, and so um, many of us end up sort of fine-tuning our expertise into niches. Um, but I like to tell people that this is very much like external medicine as opposed to internal medicine. Um, so we're oftentimes the frontline people that see um, people that come in, that patients that come in with um, basically anything that is hampering a function. Most of the time it's pain or weakness um, and we start with the diagnosis, you know, figuring out uh, where the injury is. Well, first of all, if there is an injury, if, uh, where the injury is and, and what's hampering the ability of that person to be able to do what they want to be doing. So, for instance, um, uh, we oftentimes get athletes. So I think that's sort of the uh, more well-known thing of what we do within sports medicine, musculoskeletal medicine. Um, a soccer player comes in um, and they've twisted their ankle and their foot, hurts. maybe they don't even know they twisted ankle. All they know is, you know, they come in and their foot hurts and they can't play ball. And so um, our, uh, our mission is to really try to get that soccer player back to playing soccer um, so we have to figure out why the foot hurts um, and, and how to then treat it accordingly. So you know, we work in um, we work um, in tandem with the orthopedic surgeons if that person needs surgery. Um, we work with physical therapists as um, um, oftentimes that uh, patient will need a, some physical therapy uh, to uh, get better. Um, sometimes we prescribe medication. Um, sometimes we prescribe bracing. So it really encompasses sort of the front lines of that first um, that first visit um, after some uh, patients coming
0: in and, and not understanding why they can't do what they want to do. Interesting. Do you see? Do you find that um, people, like you were saying with the soccer player, too often jump to say like an orthopedic surgeon or another healthcare professional before getting that external look with a physiatrist?
1: I think that's probably what's happening in many, many cases. First of all, I don't think there are as many physiatrists as there are, say, orthopedic surgeons, um, or even, uh, you know, family practice medicine, uh, which has some specialty in sports medicine as well. Um, so that does seem to happen quite a bit. Um, sometimes uh, we'll get sort of the reverse referral where the orthopedic surgeon recognizing that the issue that they're seeing the patient for is not a surgical problem. Um, recognizing our expertise in sort of managing the non-operative management, we'll get referrals from the orthopedic surgeon. Um, we do try to educate our primary care doctors. So, for many people, the first uh, doctor that they see is going to be their family practice uh, physician or their internal medicine physician. And um, so, if we, you know, we do try to um, educate our primary care physicians on on what we do, so they know to refer to us. Um, but it's not unusual to get referrals um, back and forth between even um, our sports medicine, family practice uh, physicians, and physical therapists sometimes will refer to us, orthopedic surgeons will refer to us.
0: Do you uh, do you have patients that are have seen an orthopedic surgeon, have gotten surgery, and you're part of their follow-up care after surgery?
1: Absolutely. That also happens as well. So um, Sometimes we'll see a patient recognize that that patient needs surgery, Um, Let's say the patient needs um, an arthroscopic knee surgery to repair a meniscal injury. And they'll see the surgeon. The surgeon will, um, you know, follow up with them until the surgery has healed and the patient is um, hopefully near back to where they were. But if there seem to be glitches, and sometimes, unfortunately, what can happen is secondary issues can happen, let's say, They've been out of commission for a while and then they develop some weakness because they haven't been as active and now their hip hurts them or now their back hurts them and will oftentimes um you know follow up after the surgery to address uh, the sequelae of uh, the original injury
0: okay um some techniques that i know that are in your toolkit include radio frequency ablation medical acupuncture and various forms of injections uh, can you discuss in what scenarios uh, you use these different tools?
1: Sure, all those things are, you know, the interventions that I use, and those are—I I li- I like to think of those as my tools. Um, unlike some other specialties, um, I think you know I'm—I'm I'm, I'm lucky to have a field where really my primary skill is in the skill of the diagnosis, and then everything else that I'm doing is really. Tools that I use to help treat the diagnoses that I make. So, if a patient frequently will come in for, with back pain, and that seems to be the large bulk of uh, the patient population I see, is back pain, neck and back pain. Patient comes in with back pain, and, and very typically, that back pain is coming um, localized from the joints of the spine, and that's most people complain of sort of the achy um, stiffness that they get in the morning or um, you know, sharp pain when they move in a certain way that stays right in the back, and that oftentimes is related to pain coming from the joint. And so one option, uh, if they aren't responding to um, conservative care, which would be the physical therapy and strength training piece of it, um, there we can, uh, if necessary, do... um, a block to determine if the pain is coming from the joint. So we block the joint with anesthetic and put a little steroid to decrease inflammation. And if that seems to be the localizing um, source of the pain and the patient feels persistent pain, we do the radiofrequency ablation, which is a procedure where we burn the nerve that feeds the joint. So there's thankfully a, a very small accessible nerve that feeds the joint that doesn't cause muscular weakness, but it doesn't cause your leg to uh, to become paralyzed or, you know, it, it, it's a nerve that uh, predominantly functions to give sensation to the joint. We can burn that nerve, that's what the radiofrequency ablation means, um, is using radiofrequency ablating or burning the uh, nerve so that the joint uh, is rendered numb and that's one pain relieving um, procedure that I, I do. Um, another um, another avenue that I use is in patients who have um, pain and want to take um, a different route and they want to try um, some um, alternative or complementary type uh, treatments to address their pain and for whatever reason they you know, either can't or don't want to take medication um, or they want something adjunctly uh, to add to their physical therapy, we do acupuncture to help alleviate back pain. Um, also do epidural injections if the patient is having um, pain that's not being alleviated with physical therapy for um, nerve-related um, pain, oftentimes coming from a herniated disc. So, um Basically, if if there's an area that hurts, I I probably have some sort of intervention that I try to employ to use it. But those are really just tools um, to get the patient back to uh, being able to um, function and get stronger. I I, I always tell my patients, you know, these fancy injections and um, while... um, They sound very promising because, you know, a patient comes in and they just want their pain taken care of. I like to explain to them that, you know, the goal really is to get their function back. So we really got to get the strength um, to to support the structure so that it's not so painful. So it's oftentimes not so simple as just, you know, sticking a needle in it. Hmm.
0: Taking a step back, you said that neck and back pain are, are pretty much, is one of the most common things you see. Um, what what is the reason um, that you see people having that? Is it a because of something as 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 serious as like trauma, or is it more lifestyle things, being overweight, sitting a lot, etc.? What what are the causes for that typically?
1: I think depending on the study that you look at, the number one or number two cause for all office visits all uh, chief complaints to the doctor is low back pain. So it's a, it's a national. Um, epidemic uh, uh, it's a big problem in our in our country um, is low back pain so I think a part of the reason that the large majority of my practice is back pain is because it is so prevalent um, I think the statistic is something like 85% of all people at some point will um, take time off for, for back pain or, or will have a doctor's visit for back pain wow. yeah it's quite high
0: but what um, like what are some of the underlying reasons for that being the case? Is it like, is it like people are overexerting themselves in their physical way? They have like some sort of trauma, or is it like uh, being overweight or sitting too much? What are like the main things you could pinpoint um, as to why people have such an issue with back pain?
1: I think it's multifactorial. You know, we you know, maybe once upon a time. You know, it's interesting because. Back pain seems to be um, more of a primary chief complaint amongst developed countries. And I think that is because um, we've sort of gotten away from uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyle. You know, we wake up in the morning, you know, maybe we crawl out of bed, brush our teeth, go down the stairs. Maybe that's our physical activity. You know, grab our coffee, get in the car at 25 minutes, sit in the office eight hours. You know, get back in the car. You know, maybe if you're really good, you might exercise for twenty or thirty minutes. So we spend most of our day very sedentary, and I don't think that's really what our bodies were were really built for—is this prolonged sitting um, type of activity. Um, and so I, I think that that starts to then wear on our on our. Um, system and because our spine is central to our system, the spine gets a large brunt of that. I think also we get, uh, we've get we gotten much larger population of neck pain because now we use our smart devices so um, extensively um, and again, I don't think we were meant to look down for hours on end at a small little 5 inch device so um, I, I think that that probably plays a role into it. Obesity certainly is a big problem in our country, Um, and the reason that's relevant is because um, many people do carry a lot of their weight sort of at the midsection, and that mechanically places a lot of pressure on the low back, Um, as well as um, obesity also leads to some inflammatory factors, and inflammation um, in the joint is oftentimes um, a factor in pain. As well, um, and you know there, there are other features—the way we sit, we sit at a computer—but um, I think there's a lot of mechanical factors um, that contribute to uh, the, the widespread prevalence of low back pain. I think that's why, if if you just do a quick Google search, you'll see just you know back pain treatments and devices um and seating and desk type things it's a billion dollar industry you know it's it, people are people are willing to pay almost anything to treat their back i see all kinds of crazy devices you, know, you hang upside down or you know put on a copper bracelet or you know hang a magnet over your head i don't know like there's so many different things that people are willing to do to treat back pain and i think it's partly the way we live um and I think it's partly um, the the
0: diseases that are the result of how we live. the The most intriguing tool um, that we discussed before, uh, to me, uh, is acupuncture. Can you elaborate on the mechanism of acupuncture? You know how uh, it works, and um, in your eyes, does the efficacy of the practice? kind of depend on how much the patient is sort of buying into it.
1: So that's an interesting question, I think a lot of people, and I used to uh, tell patients, I said, you know, I've been doing this for long enough that um, I can now say, you don't have to believe in it for it to work. I've had several patients come in and say, well, I don't really believe in this, but I'm going to try it because my wife or my daughter or, or whoever Told me that you know I should try it, or I you know I don't know what else to try, but I don't want back surgery, so let's try this. Um, there's been enough research to show that it uh, that acupuncture for certain uh, treatment uh, for, for tre- certain um, diagnoses um, certainly exceeds um, exceeds placebo effect, and placebo effect is somewhere in the range of twenty eight to thirty percent. Um, which is actually in of itself pretty compelling if you get something that's 30% effective um, with little to no um, uh, repercussions, it's still um, a, a significant, um, uh, it, it's not 0%. So, but that being said, acupuncture um, has been shown to be effective. In fact, there's a whole division of complementary and alternative medicine um, that was born out of acupuncture interests. And that's in the uh, the Department of the NIH. Um, They have a whole division that studies nothing but complementary treatments um, to try to get more science on on how it works. Um, My training in acupuncture is actually was specific to uh, an acupuncture uh, school for physicians only, Um, and so uh, it is an interesting dichotomy of of, um, of learning. So we've, I, I have my traditional medicine of, you know, the hip bones connected to the, the back and, you know, all the different anatomical and, and blood vessels and nerve endings and, and skin and muscles and how they interact. And then when I went, went to learn acupuncture, the physician who was teaching it, uh, John Holmes has Joe Holmes had said, you know, I need you for a moment to put all of your medical knowledge aside and learn a a new way of thinking because in the acupuncture realm, they describe the 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 body as um, a series of meridians, which is channeled, Um, and and dysfunction of the body is related to. A dysfunction of one of these meridians and so there's 15 meridians which is different than thinking of the blood system uh, the blood uh, the circulatory system or a muscular system or you know or our nerve system um and acupuncture has been mapped out across these 15 meridians and treatments are based on and treating these blockages of the meridians, which is based on your diagnosis, again, of where the blockages are. Um, I find that with the acupuncture um, treatments that I'm using, where I'm trying to diagnose an acupuncture diagnosis, um, sort of parallel to diagnosing my allopathic or my standard medical, Western medical diagnosis, that they oftentimes can help each other. So, for instance, if I get a patient, and there's five phases within the acupuncture phase of uh, learned, you know, there's metal and wood and fire. Um, and it's interesting because it sounds a lot more voodoo-y, I suppose, um, when I describe it in English. But in, in its traditional language as uh, Chinese, um, it, it, it doesn't have the same connotations as as just being elements of of earth or wind or fire that um, rel- actually has, um, has a way of describing being more descriptive as opposed to elements that are very concrete. Um, so when I see a patient who seems um, very inflamed with a lot of back pain and they it's red in the face and 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 writhing and, and um, almost explosive. I would say that patient's you know very fire or very hot, or I would say you know the patient has a lot of back spasm. The muscles are in tension and you know there's a lot of spasm. And so you can bridge those two um, worlds: the acupuncture world and the allopathic world. At least that's what I do. Um, so if in the future I end up treating that patient with acupuncture, I think to myself, this person would do well with, in the acupuncture world, dispersion treatment, so I think along those lines of that, right, in, in terms of what we've proven within um, and the study of acupuncture, I don't think they have a defined idea of exactly how it works from a cellular level, So what they have shown is that it does matter where you stick a needle, just sticking a needle you know, into any old place in the body is different than placing them at a precise acupuncture point um, along a channel. Um, for instance, um, they did a study where they injected at um, acupuncture points with some technetium, which is like a radio sensitive uh, isotope. And- the um, injectate actually traveled along these meridians, whereas if you injected the technetium in a random sham point, non-acupuncture point, it just sort of stayed locally and dispersed locally. So I I thought that was very interesting um, when I was um, getting my training. Another study that was kind of interesting was that, um, you know, the um, acupuncture... Um, needles that we use are metallic and they have to be metallic and the reason for that is that um, when you turn the acupuncture needle as I uh, place the needles I give it a little bit of a turn it actually changes the polarity it goes from plus to minus minus. Um, and so many acupuncturists actually employ using um, electrical current to, uh, to move along that current. Um, that's and it was described back in the olden days. They used to use bamboo acupuncture needles, which sounds torturous. But, um, and the reason that would work was because they would use live bamboo, which, um, you know, which had water in it like, and conductive, therefore. Um, so we do know that there's something that's happening. We do know that it seems to be traveling along these pre-described um, channels. And had, there's enough studies that show that, that it has efficacy. But, you know, the problem is that it's hard to do this study um, because there's so many different um, fields of acupuncture. There's different schools of acupuncture and different um, ideas of of, of proper treatment. And so the the research on it isn't very standardized.
0: Yeah, what you're saying definitely uh, leads me into a further uh, holistic discussion, I guess I wanted to have it. A lot of your practice sounds like it revolves around relieving pain, which I guess um, is in general like what a physician does, but particularly in in physiatry, it sounds like. Um, So can you define pain in the physiological sense and then also in the holistic sense and maybe describe how you synthesize these uh, in your practice? It's interesting. Pain is sort
1: of a unique experience. And for all of the... um, advances we've made in medicine, we still don't really have a test to measure pain. Um, and so it's it's only as good as a person describes their pain. And so the um, International Society of Pain actually describes pain as one of um, emotional, sensory, and cultural um, uh, perception. So, um, so... Uh, entity, a a physical uh, stimulus can occur to cause pain. So if you cut yourself, um, you know, you get the chemical markers of cytokines and inflammation, and these are are protective because it sends a signal up to your brain to tell the brain that something bad has happened and you should avoid that. Or I should say, if you put your hand on, you know, a hot stove, you'll move your hand away because it's painful. Actually, reflexively, your body, before it even knows it's in pain, knows to pull it away because of the stimuli. So that's the physical somatic stimuli. Then there's an the emotion co- uh, component to it, which is, um, I can't believe I burned my skin, and oh my gosh, I'm going to have to, you know, the the emotion of the pain, and and that has um, a lot to do. Uh, with you know how the individual responds to that pain. Um you know um we certainly see people with very similar injuries with a wide variety of um responses to it. Okay, you know, um and then the cultural aspect of, you know, what is culturally acceptable in terms of how they express their pain. So Pain is pretty complex because um, there's no one measure for pain. And so what we often do is we ask people to standardize their own pain um, for themselves. So I'll ask patients, you know, on a range of zero being no pain and 10 being the worst pain, where's your pain level at? And that gives me a gauge of where they're starting out from in terms of um, their level of suffering um, and, and um, uh, both emotionally physically. and physically. And that gives me a way to sort of gauge the progression and success of our treatment options. Um, but as I tell people, sometimes people come in and, and they want an MRI because they want to know why they're in pain. Um, and, and I like to explain to them, you know, there, there's no test for pain. We have <laughs> lots and lots of tests to tell us the way things are working or not working, but we don't have a test for pain
0: right yeah I think the the emotional and uh, physical like distinction between pain is interesting I know that uh, Buddhist thought makes a distinction right between pain and suffering pain is a sort of this inevitable aspect of life while while suffering is yeah. brought on by kind of grasping and, and not accepting the pain um, do you kind of does that inform how you you interact with patients where you you kind of say, you know, you have two individuals who both have a uh, a certain injury, um, but one is reacting very differently. How do you kind of cater your care uh, depending on how much suffering they're quote unquote causing themselves?
1: Right. Well, I always believe my patient. You know, the patient comes in and they tell me they're an eight out of ten pain. They're in eight out of ten pain. Now, whether or not I can tie that eight out of ten pain to um, a specific abnormality on an MRI or an X-ray or on my physical exam isn't always, you know, isn't always one-to-one correlation to their level of pain. But I, I, I try very hard to not say to the patient, you know, you don't have pain. And in fact, I never say to the patient that they don't have pain because if the patient's coming to you because they have, uh, because they're complaining of pain, you have to believe them. But um, I do, I do oftentimes broach the subject of what else is going on in their lives, and actually, many times patients will volunteer that um, I think I'm under a lot of stress. I think that might be causing my neck pain. What do you think? And I will say, you know, definitely. And it's not just because the person isn't tough enough, or you know, zen enough, or whatever. Um, there's a physiologic response that occurs when we are under stress that makes us more vulnerable to pain. And there's a physiological, and so I ask about a lot of things, you know, not just what your stress level is, but you know, how well are you sleeping? We also know, like, if you don't get good quality sleep, you're going to be in more pain. If you don't get good nutrition, um, if you don't, um, if your psychological health is not optimized, you're more vulnerable to pain. We know patients who are depressed are more likely to have chronic pain as well. But there's a lot of physical factors that play into how a person um how a person expresses um an an injury.
0: Do you believe just even, you know, coming coming into your office talking about their pain and maybe some of the, the factors like stress or other things that are going on in your life that in and of itself just decreases the pain?
1: You know, sometimes patients will actually say, you know, I feel so much better after talking to you. And I think there is value in, um, well, and I think for one, when a patient comes in and sees the physician, they're making an active, they're, they're doing something actively for something that they may feel helpless about. So when they have, oftentimes people have pain, and they'll say, "You know, it's a very helpless feeling because I don't know what to do to alleviate it." So sometimes just making that first step and and seeing the doctor gives the patient some control back, and I think that that's very empowering. And and at least if it doesn't bring down the pain down from eight to six, at least they feel like they're doing something and that there's a plan. and I I do try to make sure that one I understand why the patient. Is there um, um, what the patient expects from the visit, and then you know what our what our plan is to um, to reach that goal. And and I think sometimes just having a concrete plan of here's what we're going to do, here's what I here's what I think your diagnosis is, here's what I think we're going to, here's what we can do about it, and then it gives the patient a roadmap to follow and I think that can be very empowering and
0: that in and of itself sometimes can alleviate pain. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about just uh, medicine in a broader sense and ask you uh, what are the gifts and challenges of being a woman in medicine?
1: I don't know, I've never not been a woman in medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that medicine is um is incredibly gratifying and I think that nothing that's gratifying isn't hard. So, you know, I, I expect that the that the things that I do to that I get the most joy out of and the most gratification out of it are, are by its very nature going to be challenging. So um, in terms of specifically uh, to being a female in medicine um uh, I think there are challenges when um, when one isn't being understood. So I don't know if that's always if it's because I'm a woman or not a woman. But of course, you know when you meet challenges and and you have difficulty communicating what challenges are, or uh, when you feel that you're not being understood, that can be very challenging. Um, I think that um, i I graduated at a time when there were, I think my graduating class was twenty eight percent women. it was it was not a lot of women. Um, these days at University of Michigan go blue, uh, which is where I went to medical school. Um, the medical school class is actually fifty one percent women. Um, so there's actually for the first time ever more women than men in that in that class. And um, I suspect that probably changes the dynamic some. Um, I think that being a woman in medicine, it, you know, there are the sort of funny things that we all share uh, amongst my, co- my other fellow women colleagues of being mistaken um, for, you know, for not being the doctor. Or uh, there's a joke um, that uh, somebody had posted uh, which was um, um, when when your when your woman doctor comes in and introduces herself as a doctor, um, and then uh, treats treats you, tells you your diagnosis, tells you your treatment, um, and then um, says she's a doctor, uh, and then leaves, uh, shakes your hand, and then leaves the room. Um, it means that she wasn't your nurse, she, she's your doctor. And so and I, I didn't say that very elegantly. Um, but you know, I certainly, and I think most of my colleagues have had that experience where um, I happened to have a male medical assistant come in um, and he took the blood pressure for my patient and said a few niceties, walked out, and then I came in and introduced myself, saw the patient, gave a diagnosis, plan, and and I said, you know, is there anything else I can help you out with? And the patient said, "Um, uh, yeah, when is the doctor coming back in? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so we've we've had those types of challenges, but um, and and so much less so now than there used to be, so I think that the, the, um, the fabric of medicine is changing a little bit now that there are more women in it. Um, but, um, like I said, I only know my own experiences, and and whatever challenges I've faced, are also, I also absorb into um, what I've achieved. I don't know if that helped answer your question at all.
0: <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, it. it's just an ongoing discussion. Like you said, the fabric of, of medicine is changing, so I think it's important to just continue a a constant dialogue uh, regarding like what doctors, what, what the healthcare looks like, you know? Um,
1: I will say, you know, actually, so one of the most empowering things I've done as a female physician is I just returned from a conference, which was called um, the women's uh, physician wellness conference. And it was a conference of all women physicians from all different fields sort of coming together and talking about, um, you know, their their experiences. Um, and a lot of it was venting and um, talking about, like, scenarios like I just talked about where, you know, you're not always recognized for your accomplishments or, um, you know, being talked over or your ideas being passed off as somebody else's and those types of challenges. Um, and it was... Uh, really unique and empowering to go to this conference and it is something that i have to say i don't think well i know it wasn't available you know 15 20 years ago um and now i think with the increasing numbers um we as women physicians don't always feel like we are by ourselves and um and increasingly, we can empower each
0: other to just go out there and do it and, and not second guess ourselves. Uh just want to bring it back to the present again with, with what's going on with COVID. I know um, you're doing uh, some increased visits with telehealth. Can you just talk about how that's been going? And uh, do you feel that it compromises the doctor-patient relationship at all?
1: Um. Telehealth has been interesting, it certainly has been interesting, and and it's been a a fast learning curve. Um, I think they've been trying to roll it in, telehealth has been been trying, people within medicine and certainly the government have been trying to roll in things like telehealth to try to get to broaden access. Um, There are challenges certainly with it, Um, it's very hard to do a physical exam within my field, Without being able to uh, physically be present with the patient, Um, that being said, there um, are—it certainly is better than nothing. And I've been doing some televisits with my uh, patients, and if I can visually see them and I can instruct them, as long as the patient's able to follow directions uh, and understands my directions, so it um, definitely—it definitely forces me to improve my communication. Uh, verbally, on, on how I want them to proceed because I have to be a little bit more creative on doing the physical exam. Um, but I, I could I, I see some benefits in doing tele, televisits for the patients that might have limited access to be able to get to us as physicians. So, for instance, I saw a patient the other day who had... Um, severe acute back pain and I don't think that patient would have physically been able to get to my office he was um, in so much pain so he was sort of laying on his couch and so at very least I could talk to him I could see him, I could sort of instruct him um, and so there was a lot of value to the televisit there Um, on the other hand the other day I had somebody who had sprained their knee And that was very hard to assess because short of just being able to see that it's swollen and that the patient was limping, it's very hard to gauge how much swelling and how much um, laxity or give there is without really touching the knee. So I don't think that, at least within my field of um, musculoskeletal medicine, that we're going to be replaced by computers or televisits 100%. But I definitely think it'll be a useful tool, and this um, this pandemic has sort of forced our hand, um, and and I think that it it will change a component of medicine um, ongoing even after we
0: get past this um, crisis. And just uh... and I think for the better. Just a general uh, physician question related to COVID. I know that, um, like obviously, like emergency physicians, uh, and internal medicine people are are definitely being strained a lot on the front lines. But are for like the whole physician population, are 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 uh, doctors from all specialties kind of trying to be recruited to sort of help in the 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 shortage of, of providers on the front lines, or?
1: Um, I definitely have gotten notices from um, New York State government um, sort of and from Connecticut um, government um, sort of a call to action. they've uh, and that's just generally I think because I have an MD I think they've sort of put it out there to all health professionals that if um, if they don't have an active license or if they've been recently retired um, to they've encouraged people to come out of retirement and volunteer their efforts um, I have heard from other psychiatrists who practice more of the inpatient rehabilitation that they've been asked to uh, redirect and, and be treating um, more general medicine patients as opposed to just their physiatry patients. Um, but myself, I have not been, we are we're staying within our specialty and uh, we are taking call and um, manning the or, the urgent care portion of the orthopedics um, here at our hospital. So, um, you know, just because this pandemic is occurring doesn't mean that people aren't continuing to have orthopedic issues and problems. Um, and so our hospital has sort of shifted gears to treating those urgent orthopedic issues that maybe would have gone to the emergency room, but really since they're you know, people aren't wanting to go there and expose themselves potentially um, to to the um, to the um, virus, um, and also, um, you know, they're wanting uh, more specialized orthopedic care, and, and so we're taking call for that.
0: All right. Well, I just wanted to finish up real quick with that a series of fast-paced questions that tell us more about you. Um, So you practice out of Stanford, Connecticut, um, and speaking on behalf of all millennials, we know Stanford from The Office. Are you an Office fan? I love The Office. (laughs) So who's your favorite Office character? Or favorite Office moment? Oh, my
1: favorite Office moment. You know, actually it wasn't necessarily an office moment, but I just saw a cute podcast, or it wasn't a podcast, a cute thing with John Krasinski and Steve Carell, uh, where they go down memory lane, and this was just out, like, a couple days ago, and that was, um, that was great, and I, I hope you look it up. Um, I think John is doing something called, like, something like Just Good News, or something like that. He was trying to do something positive and upbeat, um, and he brought on Steve Carell. They were like laughing about their favorite moments. So you should take a look at that. But um, oh gosh, so many um, funny moments. I loved um, the was it the three k or the the marathon that Steve Carell uh, <laughs> Michael where Michael is like doing this marathon and it's really hot out and he's like carb loading while he's running and <laughs> it's um. It's an
0: awesome, funny, funny, um, episode. Yeah. I th- um, I think and then at the end he
1: finishes and I think he's only gone like around the block or something.
0: And- <laughs> I think Jim and Pam skipped out on that one, if I recall correctly. Or they, uh, they, yeah, they, right. they dogged it. They walked it. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> I think they went home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you, uh, uh, back down memory lane when you were roaming State Street and South U. Uh, what's your favorite activity to do in Ann Arbor? Oh, wow.
1: Um, I love going to Rick's.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> they
1: had great bands, great fun times.
0: My friends and I always liked uh, dollar domestics That's a good night
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right Well back in my day it was dollar Pictures, So that's how old I am Uh, Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But that was a good deal even back then Um, Let's see I loved um, Something in med school that we did Which was called the Galen Smoker And we did a spoof musical every year And that was super fun too
0: Very cool Um couple more for you here. Do you have a a hobby that you enjoy?
1: Um gosh, hobbies. Play a little bit of golf, not very well. Um, not lately. Um my hobbies right now I love reading. Don't get to do that a whole lot. Um just finished up Mitch Album, uh, most recent book. Um and I don't think it was his most recent book. Um and What else do I love doing? I like exercising. I really love um, working out. So I like to... I'm not a great runner. I wasn't physiologically built for running, but I do 5Ks now and then. Um, And I like to work out and and be outside.
0: Excellent. Lastly, you have a shout-out to perhaps a mentor in your medical career or your life?
1: Oh, well, quite a few. Um... Within my field of physiatry, there's a man named Joel DeLisa, who um, really was very instrumental in building the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation um, into a much uh, more uh, respectable uh, field. Um, And I think he... He said something uh, to all of us while we were training, which was, you know, you've been blessed with being in one of the best uh, training programs in the country. And so in exchange, I, I really urge you guys to give back to the field. Um, and then that's always sort of stuck with me, um, the importance of sort of putting the word out, of, out there on what we do and making sure that we're practicing um, really good quality um, physiatry.
0: Dr. Alice Chen, thanks for joining the show.
1: Thank you so much, John. Take care.
0: That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.